0: Hey there, if you are ready to build your service-based business from scratch and ditch your nine to five, then I want you to head on over to shediditherwaypodcast.com forward slash leap and download my free ultimate leap checklist and starter kit. Again, you can head to shediditherwaypodcast.com forward slash leap to download my ultimate leap checklist and starter kit to get started on building your service-based business and ditching your nine to five. Hello and welcome to She Did It Her Way, a podcast dedicated to helping you launch a business that allows you the freedom to create from anywhere, design your own schedule in a way that supports you and pursue what it is that lights you up. I'm Amanda Boleyn, your host, and it is time to do it your way. In today's episode, we are sitting down with Maureen Fawn, who is the COO and co-founder of Bao Bob's Studio, which is a virtual reality animation company that makes animated films. And she co-founded the company with Eric Darnell, the writer and director of all four Madagascar films and the movie Ant. So Bao Bob's third co-founder is Larry Cutler, who was the technical director for Toy Story 2 and Monsters, Inc., and was also the global head of character technologies for DreamWorks Studios. What I love about this interview is Maureen talks about knowing how to have the confidence in pursuing your dream career, even though it may not be. What other people expect you to pursue. Also, learn how to find the perfect co founders, be able to work your network to help you start your business, and also see how to educate men on the female experience in the workplace and get over what society deems as attractive in women at work and do you. All right, guys, we are back with another episode of the She Did It Her Way podcast. And on today's episode, I have the absolute pleasure of welcoming Maureen Fawn, who is the COO and co-founder of Baobabs. Did I say that right? Baobabs Studio? Yes. Okay, perfect. I wanted to make sure. Um, Studios. And she is speaking to us from a women in tech perspective, and I'm super excited that she is here to talk about the launch of her company and what they've been working on and give us some insight of what it is to be female in tech and growing and scaling your business. So, Maureen, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah. Well, why don't you give us in your own words what it is that you do, and then we'll talk about your journey and how that your journey has led you to this moment of starting your company.
1: Sure. Um, so I'm the CEO co-founder of Bayobot Studios, and we're the leading VR animation studio. Um, just quick background on what we do. Um, I co-founded the company with Eric Darnell, who is the writer and director of all four Madagascar films and also Ants. And also my third co-founder is Larry Cutler, who's our CTO, who uh, was at Pixar early days on Toy Story 2 and Monsters, Inc. in uh, animation for as a technical director. Then he went to DreamWorks Animation to become global head of character technologies and now is with us. So he's amazing at both technical and production. So I represent business. Eric represents creative, and Larry represents technical. And we thought it was really important to have a well-balanced team at the top as co-founders to make sure that not one discipline ends up overpowering another. So my background, quickly, I was um, most recently vice president of games at Zynga, where I was for six years, and I was um, looking over the Farmville franchise. And hopefully some of you will have (laughs) played Farmville. Um, It was a really cool cool game especially since when I started it was right around when Zynga started there wasn't anything such as casual gaming yet back then so it's really exciting to create a new industry back then but that's why it's so exciting to do this um, VR animation because it's creating yet another new industry and we have amazing advisors such as the co-founder of Pixar the co-founder of PDI DreamWorks Animation and then also um, people such as the main animator for Aladdin Beauty and the Beast Um, Pocahontas, amazing, amazing films. And our first piece, Invasion, uh, which was the first piece we launched was just an experiment, became the top downloaded VR experience across all headsets, which was so exciting because everyone thought that VR was just for hardcore games. And people realized after our piece went out that there's a huge space for narrative content. And the second piece, Asteroids, is actually launching... Uh, Very soon, within weeks, and that's starring Elizabeth Banks and also um, somebody else who will be announced (laughs) shortly. And uh, the Invasion actually ended up winning an Emmy for Best Interactive and got picked up to become a feature film in Hollywood on a flat screen. And We're working with Rothkirchenbaum Films on that, and they did Maleficent, Snow and the Huntsman, and Alice in Wonderland. So we're super excited about all the VR pieces that we're working on and are coming out soon.
0: Wow. Okay, that is so incredible to have, like, such an amazing network. It's surrounded even just your co-founders that you, Eric and Larry as well, and, like, all of your guys' background based on what you've done. And especially with VR and AR and all this technology that's coming, that is here already, it's not, like... It's not in the future it is it is today Um, talk take us back to what was your like your background and then you talked a little bit about your work history but what really made you make the decision to say okay I'm gonna go out and co-found a company versus continuing to stay with your previous company
1: well I loved animation my entire life and I designed my major at Stanford for undergrad a major that would be perfect for animation it was art, computer science and psychology Um, Because I loved animation since I was young. But my parents, uh, being immigrant parents, felt that it wasn't very practical to become an animator (sighs) and that I could become poor and destitute if I followed my dreams. So instead of going into animation like I had always dreamed, I ended up becoming a UI designer at eBay as my first job. And... I loved it. I learned a lot, but I still loved animation. So nights and weekends, I took classes at the local community college, De Anza, because a lot of the Lucasfilm animators would teach there. I was just waiting for the day that I had saved up enough money that I could actually pursue my real passion in animation. And I had planned to apply to get a master in fine arts at an art school. So after five years passed, I decided it was time, but was very disappointed when I found out that the deadlines had all passed for the programs that I wanted, but round three of business school is still available, and my mother said, you should apply to business school, and honestly, at that time, I was thinking I hate business, so I don't want to do that, but... Uh, I got in, I applied because I wanted to satisfy my mom. (laughs) I got in, but was going to say no. And my boss at the time, uh, Susan at eBay said, don't be an idiot. Don't say no to Harvard without first trying Hollywood out. You think it's sexy, but you don't really know. So I quit my job at eBay, took on any job, an internship I could possibly get in Hollywood and ended up becoming assistant to Zach Braff and Joseph Gordon-Levitt's talent manager and doing script development. And I learned that everything's a business at the end of the day, especially in Hollywood. So I ended up going to business school because, you know, mom's always right. (laughs) uh, So I was at business school for two years. And in between, I took an internship at Pixar, working on Toy Story 3. And I learned a lot about animation. But another thing I learned about animation is that it was a very mature industry, which means there are a lot of um, mature businesses that are already there which means um, that a lot of the emphasis uh, is put on decreasing costs to increase margins, because when you have a mature industry, you're splitting up the pie instead of growing a new pie. And I felt like I really want to be part of creating something new. And also, it didn't make sense at that point with my new business education to start an animation company in a mature industry, because Unless I have a huge amount of money or unfair distribution advantage, it meant that it would be really hard to compete against, say, like a Pixar or Disney or DreamWorks. So instead, I joined Zynga right when they started because it was both still entertainment, but the most exciting part, it was about creating a completely new industry and connecting the world through games. So I joined Zynga. Was there for six years, and as I said earlier, became vice president of games, looking over the Farmville franchise. But nights and weekends, I still loved animation, so <laughs> I worked with my two friends, Dyson Robert, who are two art directors from Pixar, on a um, on a film called The Dam that ended up getting nominated for the Oscars while I was still working full time at Zynga. Wow. So, just couldn't keep my hands away from animation. I just, it didn't make sense from a business perspective to do it. And also like in terms of wanting to be part of something new, but I still loved animation. So I just found ways to, to stay in it despite having a different full-time job. And finally, the first time I put on a VR headset, I hated it because mm-hmm. all I could notice was the bad resolution and the pixels because what I saw was live action. And when you're looking at live action, you have really high standards for how good that image looks because we have really high standards. Our eyes see in high definition, but even the TV screens that we look at, right? They have great high definition televisions and and screens. So it just felt like like settling. But when my engineers at Zynga hacked our game into the headset for the first time and it was animated, I was convinced because in animation, you have suspension of disbelief. You don't expect it to look real. So you don't think about those things. You're just totally transported to that world. So as soon as I put on the headset for animation, I realized this was the future of animation. Um, It just spoke to me creatively because The reason I love animation is it takes you to completely different worlds and ones worlds that are only limited by the director's imagination. It's not limited to reality like live action is. And it makes you believe that that world is so real that you think you can reach out and touch it. And that's also the definition of virtual reality, which is taking you to different worlds and making you believe it's real. And also animation makes me feel like I'm five years old again when I believed I could do anything. And uh, for VR, if it takes you totally to that world, it brings out that five-year-old in me even more and makes me feel like I'm invincible. So creatively, it was like magic, and I knew I need to do it. And from a business perspective, it totally made sense, too, because now it's a new industry. It's growing, which means no one has an advantage. No one knows what they're doing in VR, honestly, right now. (laughs) You're starting off at the ground. And if you do well, then then that's how you succeed. So finally, both my right and left side of the brains matched and it was the right time. And to be honest, I never wanted to be a CEO entrepreneur. I didn't set out to be a CEO entrepreneur because I'm actually an introvert and I always imagined you know CEO entrepreneurs being loud spokespeople but I knew I wanted to do VR animation and there weren't really options out there uh, for me to join companies to do that so I thought well this is what I want to do so if I want to do it this is the way I'm going to be able to do it is starting my own company so that's
0: the that was my long long path back to animation (laughs) I I love it. I have um, one follow up question. So just going back to the beginning, when you you wanted in, to go into art and computer, and you're building your own undergrad at Stanford, and you had your family and your mom and dad being like, mm, like, "Hey, we don't. That's not really the path we want to want you to go down." Um, talk to us about some of the resistance that you met with when you were trying to choose a path that wasn't necessarily accepted by your family tribe at that moment? Like, how did you work through that?
1: Um, Well, to be honest, I listened to them, which is, I, I sometimes wonder if I hadn't listened to them and had gone down this path immediately, if I still would have been successful because I've learned so much along the way and so many people have helped me along the way to get to where I am. But it's always easy to look back and justify the path that you take in and say, oh, well, if this didn't happen, then this wouldn't have happened. I think I would have been fine <laughs> if, I, if I had started back then, too, with animation. So I think there are many different paths that people can take. But the best piece of advice I ever received was from um, my professor, Lori Loeb, who's now at Dartmouth, but she was teaching animation at Stanford. And she said, the most important thing you do, she said, first of all, stop stressing out. You don't need to know what you want to do nobody knows what they want to do. What's most important is that you do whatever job it is that you're doing at the moment and you do it really well because the people around you will admire your work ethic. They'll respect you. And somehow later in life, they will come out to help you. And that was absolutely true. Also, she said, you will learn something from the experience that will somehow help you later. And just in terms of What I learned, if I didn't learn UI design and engineering and business and product management and some at Pixar, you know, the Mm -hmm. filmmaking, I don't think I'd be as well rounded in what I'm able to do now, because a CEO's job, at least I believe, is to balance between different disciplines. Oftentimes, you see a company CEO biased towards their own function. So, for example, Google advantages engineers because the founders were engineers. Mm. And Meg Whitman started off as a strategy consultant at Bain. So for at eBay, she really favored product marketing and strategy. And I feel like diverse points of view are what like what leads you to the best decisions. So the fact that I have all this background means that I have um, empathy for every single discipline, which means I don't want to favor one discipline over another, which gets me to seek different opinions so that I can make a better decision. And I also feel it helps me be a better leader of my team, because if each of the disciplines understand that I have empathy for them and what they do and respect that they'll just feel even more connected to me as well as the mission so it was very helpful to do that and then all the people I told you about who helped me start the company like Eric I met through Glenn the co-founder of uh co-founder of DreamWorks PDI DreamWorks Animation wow he- Sultan at Zynga And so when I was at Zynga, I asked him to mentor me. And so when I decided to start this company, I asked him to introduce me to directors. So he introduced me to Eric. And Larry, I had met when I was deciding whether or not to go to business school, because I emailed everyone in the entire Stanford alumni database that had anything to do with entertainment to get advice. And he was one of the people who responded. So we kept in touch all the way since then. And now he's my co-founder. And then Glenn Entis introduced me to Albie Ray Smith, the co-founder of Pixar, to become our advisor. Albie introduced us to Glenn Keane, the animator for Aladdin, Little Mermaid, all that. Wow. And all my business school classmates ended up helping me a lot too because a lot of them became venture capitalists. So they taught me how to do fundraising. And many of them work in the VR industry now. So all these people from my past, and, and right now my um, head of operations, she was my first boss ever who hired into me, hired me into my first job as a UI designer Mm -hmm. at eBay. So all these people absolutely did come back out from my past to help me start this. And I feel so honored and fortunate, you know, that I did all those things. Um, but it definitely was difficult at the time to go against my parents, uh, you know, wishes like in my heart, what I wanted to do versus what was practical. It's funny because my dad now says that he wishes that he had encouraged me <laughs> right when I graduated, because he's an immigrant. So when he came here, he experienced a lot of racism, right? And he had to work really hard to put food on the table. So for him, it's not you just find a job that you love. It's just find a job to put food on the table. So I understand his perspective and, but he says that over time, the United States and America has made him much more idealistic Idealistic over time and that he's softened and now he sees how the American dream is possible. And he wishes that back then he had encouraged me more. <laughs> but um, it's all good. <laughs> I, yeah. it
0: I know you landed at a really great spot. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, And I do, like, I admire how strategic everything has been for you and it's just it's a very inspirational to watch how being able to take all these life experiences that you've had and the people that you've met to culminate to this moment I know I one of the articles that you were part of I can't remember what publication but it was one thing that I found that really stood out to me was the unconscious bias regarding men and women in the workplace from both sides and you had a really interesting take on that. I would love for you to share that. And then also, um, learning how to establish your voice and take us back to the time when you found yourself doing that. So we'll start with the unconscious bias regarding men and women in the workplace.
1: Yeah, I don't think it's anybody's fault. So there's no one to blame. It's just unconscious. It's how we're raised. Um, what does it mean to be a woman and what is attractive in a woman and what is attractive in a man? So There's some research, for example, that shows that confidence is correlated with leadership. So you could be super stupid and just act really confident and people (laughs) think you're more leader-like. And ultimately, um, they also show that Men co- tend to come off as more confident, and I saw this firsthand at Harvard Business School, where 50% of your class participation is based off of um, your grade is based off of class participation. If a man's not completely sure, say they're 50% sure, they can still speak as though they are absolutely sure. Versus a woman, maybe 80% sure, but raise her hand and say, "I'm not sure, but." and so one just comes the process more confident than the other which automatically makes you them seem more leader like so it's nobody's fault but at that point do, is it right for society do we continue biasing towards thinking confidence is leader like or do we um, with armed with that information, do we then change our views? Like, it doesn't mean that women have worse views. (laughs) It just means that they may not express them the same way. But there's also, um, I think people tend to hire people like themselves. Uh, You just, you feel comfortable with people like yourself. So I'm not surprised that um, people, if it's mostly white males at the top, it's natural that they would feel comfortable Hiring white men and people who are more like themselves, and it's not their fault per se, but they just have to know that and realize that, so that they can force themselves to um, go outside of their comfort zone and, and understand that there is that bias, and read all the research that shows that diverse points of views does lead to uh, better uh, boards and better profits, and uh, force themselves to do that. But one of the experiences that I had. Um, which brought this front and center, was there was a point at which I really wanted to be promoted. And I knew that my numbers were better than all my peers. And I kept on not getting promoted. And I started feeling bad about myself and thinking maybe there's something wrong with me rather than the system. Because if you don't get promoted for long enough and you ask for it, you start blaming yourself instead of the system, which, by the way, research tends to show that men blame the system rather than themselves. Um, which is a self-fulfilling prophecy because then you become less confident and then which makes you seem less leader-like and then it can co- completely mess you up in the mind so it's very important for women to just keep on blaming the system instead of like taking that onto themselves but I was at this point where I was at rage quit levels because I was just so frustrated so I emailed my professor from Harvard and said can you send me all the articles on leadership in women and they ended up uh, sending it to me and I highlighted, uh, I printed them out. I highlighted all the stuff that I thought was relevant to me and I gave it to my boss. Now credit to my boss. He was such a great boss that I felt comfortable enough to do that. I don't think most people would feel comfortable doing that, <laughs> sending it to the boss. Cause you don't want to play the female card, but I was at rage quit level. So I had nothing to lose. And I was absolutely <laughs> convinced that I was right. So I gave it to him and he came back to me later on and said, you know what, Maureen, I realized that the reason I didn't promote you is because I was worried that if I promoted you, you'd you, be swimming with all the other sharks. And I thought that if I had waited until you're two levels above, then no one could attack you. But it's because you're a woman and I feel protective over you. I just feel naturally protective over you, which is why I didn't want you to be attacked by the sharks. But if you were a man, I would have already promoted you. To swim with the sharks because I thought you would be able to handle it. And he's like, I realized that that's wrong. That it just because you're a woman doesn't mean that you can't swim with sharks and you can't take it. And so he fixed it immediately, right? And I got promoted and I did awesome. <laughs> like, the yes, and ended up crushing it. And that just led to me becoming more confident, which then made me seem more leader like. And so I just kept on getting promoted, which is awesome. <laughs> so it's an awesome, virtuous cycle. But it showed me that. It's because he didn't know. And it's not bad that he felt protective of me. It's not bad that he was raised right to as a man that uses to protect women or whatever. It's not a bad thing that he learned. It's just something that we're naturally socialized to think. And so as soon as I pointed out and educated him, he changed. And so what that taught me is that it's not really just about educating women. It, it's good for us to have that knowledge, but it's just as effective, if not more effective, to educate men, because once they know and they have that knowledge, then they can change. If they're creating the rules of the system, they're the ones who have to meet us halfway. Also, a lot of the literature that tells women how to become more leader, like, I feel sometimes tell us to be more manly, Mm -hmm. and while there's some things we can do because we can't completely change society all at once, I feel like it's only fair that we're met halfway. That people admire the things that make us women and how we're socialized and, and value those things to be leader like as well. So um, again, it's I don't think it's anybody's fault because even women um, can be harsh towards other women in the same exact way because to be when you you think about a woman, it was what's considered attractive. It's not to be loud and aggressive and full of conflict, right? Mm -hmm. But that may be admired in men um, for being leader-like, but not considered attractive as a woman. So a woman Mm -hmm. may judge another woman the same way a man would judge a woman, because that's not what we were taught when we were young of what it means to be attractive. And there's also all these studies for fundraising too, that show that with the same exact pitch deck if there's a male voiceover reading the deck versus a female voiceover, the man is 40% more likely to get funding, the same exact content, just a different voice. And it shows that bias. And there's also some research, I believe this is uh, by Stanford that did that study. I think there was also research that says like the more attractive you are, or if you're not married, the more biased you are against, because it keeps attractiveness uh, like question on the table versus if you're totally unattractive, and you're married, maybe like you're not being judged as a female. I thought about, um, going in when I was fundraising and wearing sweatpants and, um, <laughs> wearing a ring, but I thought at the end of the day, I need to be myself, but I was very tempted <laughs> to
0: do that. So how, how is it then working with, you have other co-founders how do you guys manage the work how do you communicate what does that look like
1: um well the three of us sit right next to each other Uh, and we work very closely so we have weekly sync ups well we sit next to each other so we talk to each other all the time and we're oftentimes traveling together as well but we do have weekly sync ups um, so C staff meetings where we go through um, a lot of the HR type things and set priorities for the company. Um, but we want to make sure that, you know, creative business and technical all have equal say so we make sure that we have a balanced point of view um so it's pretty democratic but the nice thing is we do have you know decision making trees so at the end of the day people may disagree but agree to disagree and and get in line <laughs> with the decision so it's pretty good i think especially when starting a company, it's really important to um, choose your co-founders wisely. In fact, there was one book that recommended you guys to like the co-founders to work together for a while before agreeing to be Mm co-founders and just spending Mm -hmm. a lot of time together until you have lots of conflict because you want to see how you work out conflict. There are a lot of teams that are too nice and they don't want to upset each other. Others are just full of conflict all the time. I tend to be more um, okay with conflict and Larry is less okay with conflict and um, Eric is in between. So it's good to have different personalities so we can force each other um, to talk about things (laughs) and to balance each other out. But it's so great having co-founders because starting a company is incredibly emotional and stressful and you have these moments where of both intense happiness and it, incredible misery and having the co-founders there not only to share the load of work with you, but also there for you emotionally because they they know what it's like to, and they feel what you're feeling um, because you convinced all these people to join your company and to join your mission that you feel completely responsible for all of them. So it can be a lot of pressure and having them is, is wonderful.
0: Mm-hmm. How did you guys come up with the name of your company?
1: Uh, so we actually came up with a whole bunch of names and they all tended to do with nature. And I don't know why it's just, um, we really liked nature. And I went out with a survey and asked people what they thought about each of these words, like what emotions does it evoke? Do you know what it is? How much do you like it, et cetera, et cetera. But it really was just a quick uh, trick questionnaire because two weeks later I sent out another survey that said, which of these names do you remember the most and Baobab <sighs> was the name that they remembered the most probably because they couldn't spell it or say it and didn't know what it was but I was like oh it's the most memorable but it
0: it was savvy well- <laughs> oh my I l- look see yes th- this is wonderful that <laughs> is so savvy <laughs> Marine.
1: But it also has a special place in Eric and my heart because uh, the reason why I even came up with that name in the first place is because I read Ranger Rick when I was young, which is a nature magazine, and they had an issue on Madagascar, and the baobab tree is native to Madagascar, and I fell in love with these weird trees because there's this myth that says the gods were mad at this tree so they threw it down to the earth and it landed with its roots up in the air so if you look at the baobab tree it looks like its roots are in the air instead of normal branches so i always love that story and also the little prince features the baobab tree but i learned it as baobab in french and eric as you know, directed all the Madagascar films, and the baobab tree is native to Madagascar, so we just felt it was a connector uh, between things that we loved. So that was one of the reasons why we we even submitted that as, as one of the names. But also, the mission of the company is to bring out your sense of wonder and inspire you to dream, and just the the thought of a sun rising behind the baobab tree evokes that sense of wonder and and dreaming. So we thought it was perfect. And if you look at the baobab letters in lowercase, there's this like round shape in all of them. So visually, it also looks both friendly, but also it's just like a nice visual element. So it just ended up being perfect, despite the fact that people have such trouble
0: saying it and spelling it. That's so perfect though. I, that is, it's such a good idea. If you're thinking, if you're trying to come up with a name, email a bunch of people, ask them which one they like, and then email them two weeks later and say, okay, which one do you remember now? Very savvy. Okay. I have a couple last questions for you. So how are you guys planning out for 2018? How do you set your yearly goals and how do you determine what they are? And then, what does that whole process look like?
1: Yeah. So we uh, go through a process called OKRs, which I learned at Zynga, but a lot of startups had adopted. So Google started this process when they first started, too. And it's a way at a startup, it's very easy to be reactionary. It's one of the main advantages that startups have where they the strategy changes and something happens in the market and you need to adapt very quickly. And. Big companies have trouble adapting because they have to move an ocean liner, but startups can move around so quickly. So it's an advantage, but it's also then easy to get caught up constantly reacting and not being strategic and setting longer term goals. So we do this OKR process setting, which is just objectives and key results, which is a quarterly goal. So we say this quarter, um, what are the most important things we want to accomplish? And we set that. Several weeks before the quarter and then we measure ourselves against it every Friday and every single discipline has their own objectives and we're constantly measuring against that so that we make sure that we're on track. It doesn't mean you can't change it over time because you have to react, but it does keep it top of mind because you're constantly reminding yourself of what that higher level goal was. So I do set it for a year. And we also do quarterly. And I also have a ten-year plan um, because when you're you're telling employees or trying to bring new people in the company, you have to tell them what your vision is of where you ultimately want to be. So we have a ten-year, five-year, one-year, and then also quarterly goals. I'm very goal-oriented, so I, I love setting goals.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love hearing out the way that everybody does their goals and and how what What is most effective for individuals? because some people, like not some people, but everyone is just so different. So mm-hmm. um, what's it last question I have is what's been a very inspirational book that you've read?
1: Um, I love uh, well, my favorite book are children's books because they have very little words and are very <laughs> effective with the with the z is for moose is my favorite children's book of all time. But um a book, a nonfiction book that I read recently that I really admire is called um, Radical Candor. And I like this because in my management career, I've seen a lot of managers have trouble telling their employees negative feedback. And then they just leave the not underperforming employees there for a while, and they don't seem to move upwards, and they don't know why. And I think giving critical feedback is extremely important, not only for the team members, so they actually know how they can improve, but also important for the entire team. And I feel like a lot of managers say that they're too nice and that they don't want to give negative feedback because it's mean. And the way I view it, this may be uh, harsh, but I think it's really a manager being cowardly Mm -hmm. and, and being afraid because they don't they're they're afraid of conflict and not comfortable with it and they're letting their fear of conflict get in the way of the, the employee actually getting better and if the employee gets better then it helps the entire team you're letting that one person bring down the rest of the team and you're depriving them of the ability to get better and even know how they're doing so i actually think you're hurting like In fear of hurting 1%, you're hurting the other 99%. So this book called Radical Candor, I want everyone to read in my team because sometimes people tend to be too nice, is to remind themselves that you're actually being mean by not being honest and transparent. And I really like that because in my job as a CEO, it it does require to be me to be very direct with people because I have to be clear with my messaging because assuming that there's a telephone game down the line if I'm not clear then it becomes even less clear moving down the chain so it's important and sometimes I have to be the one making the very like difficult decisions for the team so having the rest of the team read this book helps them also be honest with each other because I feel when you're not honest with each other, you end up just all settling together. Like you hold back a critique or you hold back your honest opinion that could have made the product better. I think it's really important that that
0: gets out. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a great place to end and, and being able to like highlight too that even in like whatever world it's being comfortable and okay. And I giving feedback to make us all better. Yeah. I love that. Um, Maureen, will you share with my listeners where they can find out more information about you and then your company as well? Yes. So you can go to baobobstudios.com
1: or you can follow us at Facebook or Twitter. um, And the handle is just baobobstudios and and also Instagram, the same thing. And we're releasing our next piece literally in a few days. So they can... Uh, download that on uh, just about every single VR headset, as well as watch it on YouTube and also Facebook.
0: That is fantastic. Maureen, thank you so much for coming on the show. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's podcast episode. For more information, check out com. And if you enjoyed today's episode, I would love for you to leave me a review on iTunes and let me know what you think. Until next time, keep doing it your way.